Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to Reading Our Times, the podcast that explores the books and the ideas that are shaping our world. Listen with us, and we'll introduce you to conversations about race, language, war, mental health, the future of humanity, and the meaning of life. Last year, my wife and I finally gave up. After years of fighting, of protesting, of hoping, we finally gave in to the inevitable and bought two cats for our children. They were delighted. We were wary. I've never been a pet owner or, to be honest, an animal lover, so I didn't know what to expect. And to remain honest, I still don't know what we've got. But I do know that our cats are fascinating, strange, independent but affectionate, inquisitive, instinctive and gloriously, languidly lazy. I can't help wonder what they are thinking and more especially what they're thinking about us. John Gray is formerly Professor of European Thought at the London School of Economics and the author of numerous books on politics, philosophy and the human condition. He's widely renowned as one of the most intriguing and provocative thinkers today. He's also a long-term cat owner, and I think it's probably fair to say cat lover. And his latest book, Feline Philosophy, Cats and the Meaning of Life, bring together these concerns in a hundred or so pages of sleek, elegant prose. John, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you, Nick. It's very good to talk to you again. It would be remiss of me not to start by asking you about the cats in your life. So, (laughs) (laughs) briefly, tell me about them. Well, we had four over a period of 30 years. And the last of the four, Julian, passed away last year at the ripe old age. He was in his 23rd year, which is a very long and, I think, happy life for a cat. He was vigorous healthy and uh, enjoyed himself and went downhill quite quickly. So we've had these cats. They live together very peacefully. They've been wonderful companions. I wouldn't describe myself as their owner. Cats... Of course not, no. (laughs) ...aren't owned by anybody, as far as we can see. They're very self-possessed creatures. And one of the suggestions in my book is that cats were never domesticated. They initiated what we perceive as their domestication themselves, that's to say they, of their own volition, became members of human households some Mm. 10 or 12,000 years ago, attracted initially probably by the rodents that lived in grain stores that early human communities had set up in what is now the Near East or Turkey. But having become parts of human households and having become useful to human households for pest control, for example... I think their real bond with humans was to persuade humans to love them (laughs) and to enjoy being with them for its own sake because most feline companions of humans in the world aren't used for pest control purposes. And in fact, cats are not always that efficient at pest control or even very interested in it. There, There are some interesting photographs of cats sitting next to mice watching them with interest or boredom, but having no reaction at all. So I think the chief contribution of 
gets to human households is that human beings like to have them around. And so although I in no way disparage dog lovers, dogs are wonderful companions. Cats are quite different yes. in their own natures and in the type of companionship that they offer and give and in the type of love that they receive and yeah. give. You begin the book with a, a lovely story, which I, I remember you telling me many years ago about yeah. a, a former philosophical colleague and friend of yours who tried to convince you that he had managed to persuade his cat to become a vegan. Yes. Um, and this has a certain comic value to it, but there's actually there's a, there's a kind of more profound yes. thing going on behind that, isn't there? Tell us about that. Well, the profound thing can be seen at various levels. I mean, one level, perhaps the simplest, is that a vegan cat would die. Yes. <laughs> Cats need certain nutrients in order to be healthy and to live. And if they didn't get any of them, they would have to have supplements. It would become very complicated. They would die. And that's a kind of lead-in to a a more profound feature of my book, Feline Philosophy, which is that uh, it would be against the nature of a cat to become a vegan. Cats are, you might say, programmed by evolution, or you might say they've emerged in the world with the natures they have as hunters, as predators. That's what keeps them going. That's what they used to do. If they can't at least play hunt, and most forms of cat play are play hunting, they'll be unhappy, they'll be be living against their natures. And so how that fits, of course, into the the true story of this philosophical colleague of mine who believed falsely that he persuaded his cat to become a a vegan is the idea that uh, a morality or an ethic is universal in the sense that it applies not only to all human beings, but even to all uh, living creatures. And I think there's an inherent absurdity in that, because even if you think that morality or ethics has a transcendental aspect or a dimension, that it comes from uh, some transcendental source, even if you think that, you would also think that it's adapted to the natures of those who receive it, whether they be humans fallen humans or other animals it wouldn't it wouldn't be a transcendental injunction that went flatly against couldn't be yeah and there are plenty of uh, christian and other theistic thinkers aquinas for example who talk about morality and ethics and values in that way so what i found interesting and comic and absurd but it's very often repeated nowadays in other contexts is that uh, the assumption was that the the injunctions of morality were First of all, categorical, but also universal. It just applied right across the board to the whole living. And I found that so completely preposterous that I could only react to it as a joke. So hence, that led to deeper reflections on morality and to the the related issue as to whether the other animals who lack distinctive human characteristics like um, reflection and the reflective consideration of alternatives and options can have virtues or ethics and of course Aristotle thought that in respect of um, dolphins and this has been revived more recently this idea by an Aristotelian Thomistic philosopher Alastair MacIntyre in several books of his in which he says yes Aristotle was right other animals have moral virtues moral properties not the type of ethical life that humans have but they can have an ethical life Mm. and so the idea that um, the whole of creation the whole of the natural world is just waiting for humans to impose yeah. their <laughs> their categorical imperatives on it. it. Seemed to me strike me as completely ridiculous. Yeah, 
Well, I do want to talk about morality because obviously it's a very important part of the book. But before I do, yes. I want to unpick a bit more about how comparison with cats allows us to reflect on the human condition. Because mm. that example and the very fact that we're talking about that cats have a certain nature to them points towards, I think, what to me is the essential argument of the book. As you said at one point, cats are happy being themselves. Yes. While humans try to be happy by escaping themselves. And it strikes me that this is the kind of, as it were, the pivot point of the book. Is, where, yes. where you see in, in cats a natural happiness within their own skin, whereas the human condition is to be aware of their own skin and to, in some sense, be unhappy with that condition. Is yes. that a fair summary? It is entirely fair summary. Uh, it is one of the pivots of the book. In, in other words, the way I put it in the book is that for when cats aren't active, they revert to their natural contentment, or to put it in different, uh, contentment with themselves as with the natures they have and their position in the world is the default condition of cats as far as we can possibly tell. I think there's no reason to doubt that. I mean, they don't show signs unless they've been somehow traumatized or kept in unnatural environments. They don't show signs. As far as we know, there's no feline version of gambling. <laughs> there's no feline version of war. Cats have conflict, but they don't organize themselves for war. The many signs that Pascal, who I quote in the book for his wonderful analysis of what he called in the English diversion, uh, he interpreted most of human activity, actually, or large parts of it anyway, as diversion. Uh, he thought that what human beings were diverting themselves from was an awareness of their own mortality and of the fact that they're going to die. But in cats, there's no sign of that at all. You then have to ask, why are humans in this respect? Because in many respects, I'm arguing that humans are very like other animals because they emerge in the same way and have many of the same limitations, but they're also very different from other animals and especially in this way, which is that they seem by nature to be discontented with their nature mm. and unhappy with the nature they've got. Or to put it in the terms of Christian theology, they, um, or Augustinian theology at any rate, they are somehow aware, even if they deny it, that they're fallen creatures, mm. that there's something wrong with them. And even outside of Christianity, by the way, I mean, it wouldn't be uh, what we would normally think of as a moral uh, failing, but in Buddhism, for example, there's the idea that humans who reflect on their nature find that they suffer, mm. that suffering is intrinsic to their nature. They also find that they're ignorant of something. And so that's the contrast I'm drawing between humans and other animals. Yeah. You preempt actually several of my questions <laughs> or several of my points. I'm glad you mentioned Pascal because I was really struck by how much he came up in the book and I do yes. want to talk about him. But before I do, I want to pick up, I think, on this really important point of the fall you talked about. Yeah. I, I once, I remember, described you in a, in a conversation we had as a as a very scriptural thinker whose Bible ends at Genesis 3. <laughs> in a, in, yes, in other words, yeah. you take the, the Old story yeah. of the fall and the nature of, of the, the Christian idea of a fallen human condition very, very seriously. And at I one do, point yeah. you say in the book, which I think is quite profound, you can only be in paradise when you do not know what it is to be in paradise. Yes. In other words, it's intrinsic to human nature that we can't be contented with where we are because we have this wider yeah. conception of the possible yes. or of what could be different about our nature. That's right. And of course, like you, I don't interpret the fall as a temporal event. Mm. So I don't say that there was some point in the remote past, which Rousseau said, for example. Yes. I don't say there was some point in the remote past where humans hadn't fallen yet. Yes. 
but it's a description of the human condition. An it's, ongoing... part of be- it's part of being human. Yes. Part of it, it's part of the meaning of being human. Yes. Humans, as far as soon as they became recognizably human, had this experience. And you could say, well, when did they become recognizably human? Well, one way, possible way, I don't say there's only one, is when they started to bury themselves and have rituals around death. And I talk a little bit about that in the book. Whenever that happened, human beings were becoming what human beings are now. That's to say, not only that they have some sense that something can happen to them or to their other members of their species, which is very bad and which sort of ends their lives, maybe other animals can have that. Mm. A lot elephants famously gather around exactly. there. But what other animals, including cats, don't appear to have is the sense of mortality permeating their lives. Yes. And that's what humans do have. So my speculation as to what generated it was the awareness of mortality that comes with self-consciousness. So Mm. thought is the fall, or at least thought of a particular kind, Mm. self-reflexive thought, which then reflects on the situation it finds itself in this self, and which is one of not just a finitude, but a la Heidegger, but of, of mortality. And that can be expressed, of course, in fear of one's own death. Mm. But I think actually for a great many people, a larger fear or a larger unhappiness comes from bereavement. Yes. So they might say, well, I'm happy to go. I can go tomorrow, but I don't want so-and-so to go, and I don't want them to go forever. Yes. These are emotions which don't seem to exist in animals as far as... I mean, animals do seem to mourn the loss of their partners for some time, sometimes Mm. bitterly for some Mm. time. So that's certainly a feature. But they don't live in the fear of that loss. Yes. That's the difference. Yes. They don't live in the reflective fear of, well, this might happen five years from now or 10 years from now or 50 years from now and it'll be terrible. Mm. Uh, Their lives aren't shaped by that fear as far Mm. as we can tell. And so much human activity throughout history then is an attempt to come to terms with, to deal with, to be able to bear with that. And I think it's also worth having a little detour here in terms of philosophy, because historically speaking, if you go back two and a half thousand years ago, philosophy was a way of life and it was a way of dealing with the human condition. And it's only much more recently that it's become a kind of a more narrowly or it's perceived to be a more narrowly kind of cognitive process of arriving at the truth. And at one point you say, it's slightly cruel, but it did bring a smile to my face. (laughs) that today's philosophy is the practice of elucidating the prejudice of middle-class academics. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's it's broadly true. (laughs) Well, I'll give you an example from this book. One of the things contemporary philosophers do is they consult their own moral intuitions as if they were the only ones that had ever existed. And they apply them in various kinds of contexts. They ask things like, can it be moral if you don't believe in God? And of course, they all say nowadays, yes. Never, it never occurs to them to ask which morality. Hmm. Yes. Who's going to be more? <laughs> which they morality? Assume, what they're assuming is the Christian morality with which they were brought up with in their or country. Or the semi-Christian or diluted yes. post-Christian morality. In the book itself, I say um, that philosophy emerged in the West, in Greece and Rome, but also to a certain extent in India, as a, a kind of analgesic of anxiety. And I say that not just by imposing my own psychoanalytical <laughs> speculations on it, because all three ancient schools of philosophy in pre-Christian Europe, the Skeptics, the Stoics, and the Epicureans, said that the goal of philosophy was ataraxia, which was a kind of an immovable condition or, of equilibrium or tranquility. Yep. Now, you would only want that if you were suffering from anxiety. Yep. Yep. 
as you say at one point, humans philosophize for the same reason that they pray. It's a way of trying yes. to, to, to cope with, again, the, the human condition and, and the to, unease. To cope the unease the, which may go with being in the world at all and the anxieties which come with that. So religion and philosophy have similar roots, which is, again, one of the reasons that I find much contemporary secular philosophy, especially the more violently <laughs> secular versions of it, or maybe even worse, actually, the unconsciously secular versions of it. Mm. They don't know how much they've taken. There's a comic element to it. Uh, the idea that uh, humans can uh, tranquilize themselves into or fortify themselves somehow against all this simply by rational reflection. Because, yeah. of course, within religion, rational reflection might be part of it, would be part of it, but it would never be as supposed that that would be sufficient. Mm. And that, I think, is the truth. Uh, it, it never is sufficient. If you're a naturalist, as I would think of myself as being, or Montaigne was, he can also be interpreted as a Christian, but he sometimes writes as a naturalist. He says, rely on your nature. Yeah. That will say, that, well, it won't save you in the sense of redeeming you from being what you are, but it, you will be able to recover from the shocks of life. Yes. Uh, if you don't worry about them too much in advance... You revert to your nature, you enjoy certain things, you like certain things, you like certain types of human company, you like certain types of human solitude. You just follow your nature. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reading Our Times. Don't miss our other episodes on war, the future, race, language and much more. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not take 30 seconds to subscribe, share an episode with a friend, leave us a review, or give us a quick rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners to find us. Montaigne and Pascal loom for me in the the middle of the book um, as as the two critical figures. I think you say at one point that in many ways they're saying a similar thing in that it is human restlessness that lies at the heart of the problem. But of course, for Pascal, this is a reflection of our divine or our broken divine nature. Yes. Whereas uh, you say... Of our non-natural nature. Yes, that's right. The fact we're always searching for something beyond. And, and interesting, of course, with Pascal, he famously, despite being a brilliant mathematician and inventor as well, famously has this intense religious experience in, yes. in, in 1654 and then writes this note, which he then sows into his cloak, yes. doesn't he? Which he says, yes. fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, yes. God of Jacob, and not the God of the philosophers and the scholars. <laughs> and, that, and that really strikes me as, you're, yes. you, don't, you don't share the first half of that view, but you do the second half, in a sense. It's the rejection of the idea that Absolutely. the philosophical sophisticates of his age just get it wrong. Absolutely. I mean, if I were a theist, a theist it would be along Pascalian lines, or even, if you like, William Blakey lines. Socrates is not the saviour. I mean, the idea that, that humans can be saved by their capacity of reasoning from, from being human, from the common ills of humanity, which include what the Greek dramatists and later Shakespeare sort of tragic flaws in their own nature, tragic situation, the idea that reason can save them from it, it's just a joke. Mm. Not that we should be deliberately irrational, we should be as rational, as, we, as reasonable as we can be, but of course what reason means will differ from context to context, from mm. different spheres of human activity. And also it's part of reason, or it should be, to recognize where reason runs out. Yep. And you find that a bit in David Hume, for example, the Scottish skeptic, that uh, he's willing to say, well, at this point, we revert to the 
common world or we revert to nature or we revert to habit. Uh, and so I think I agree entirely with you in your characterization of, well, you know, one of my mentors, Isaiah Berlin, and he once said to me, he said, um, if I could think of God, if I could, uh, of a God in the way that the Jewish tradition and to some extent the Christian tradition does as a sort of non-natural person, I wouldn't believe in it, but I know what it means. Ah, hmm. oh, you didn't believe me. But if, if it means some completely spiritual, impersonal entity, I have no idea what that means. I would share that. I mean, if somebody sort of tried to prove to me by philosophical arguments that there was some kind of non-natural and personal, I would say, well, I'm not interested. Whereas the claims of theism, you see, I mean, I take them seriously enough to dispute them. <laughs> all, all I do with humanism is mock it. Yeah. Because I think it, it's a dilute derivative in its modern Western form, I mean. There are other forms, including Montaigne's and so on. It's a dilute version of theism. So your argument is it wants to retain a lot of theism, indeed many instances, Christian theism's ethical claims and yes. claims about human value and dignity, but yes. without having, as it were, the metaphysical roots to sustain them, do you mean? No, absolutely. I mean, if you're a genuinely a naturalist, on what basis do you claim what rational ground would do is there for thinking that humans are the most valuable thing in the cosmos? I mean, if there's a great chain of being, I mean, maybe you don't need to be a Christian, you could be a Platonist. Yes. Or even a certain type of Aristotelian. But you have to believe in a, some kind of cosmic hierarchy of value. You have to believe that values are, in some sense, independent of valuers, that there is some sort of objective realm of value that we can, you've got to believe that which is a strongly metaphysical claim and in my view probably not defensible outside of some version of theism actually mm. but if you don't believe that which many evangelical atheists say they don't mm. why are they such tremendous human supremacists and human chauvinists <laughs> human and, supremacists. <laughs> and human human uh, uh, exception i mean what on what basis uh, can they they say well humans have got these capacities of intelligence and uh, reason and language and all that. What makes them more valuable than the silent grace of a panther? Mm. Or is it just a preference? Well, if it's just a preference, if it's just an arbitrary preference, just something they feel, they never admit that because, of course, the difference between these rationalist philosophers is they think their own prejudices and preferences are rational in a way that <laughs> mm. others, others are not. The notion of humans as subject what Christians often call the person, as being a unique site of value in the universe. And not just a unique site of value, but the most valuable thing, at least in the natural world. I mean, humans, Christians would say, that God created the most natural. That depends upon a metaphysical framework, be it either explicitly theistic or at least mystical in the sense of um, Plato. Yeah. Once you take that away, I think it's it's completely groundless, and not only groundless, but even irrational. Hmm. We're in danger of agreeing on too much here, John. Um, oh, we'll disagree that... <laughs> later. Don't worry. <laughs> um, so let me let me introduce one kind of area of you know arguably disagreement as yeah. we, we come towards a conclusion, which is going back to the discussion of, of ethics. I mean, I mean, you yes. rightly say that I would be in some way. I think most Christians would probably be moral realists yes. in in some sense, dealing yes. uh, the belief that we're dealing with yes. something that isn't simply our 
our opinion, if you like, that there's something more substantial to, to ethics there. And a second dimension to this, which is that, I mean, I have on my shelves next to me several books by Franz de Waal, the, the brilliant yes, um, yes. Dutch primatologist. I met him, yes. Yeah, I'm a great fan, and much of his work emphasises how a lot of effective and even kind of quasi-rational traits that we like to claim are human are discernible in a great many other species, certainly primates, possibly corvids, so on and so forth. In other words, that... Or even octopi. That's right, yeah, cephalopods have an extraordinary, even possibly self-awareness, as far as we know. So could you not make an argument that evolution actually repeatedly navigates itself to some form of cognitive capacity, some form of effective intelligence. And were we to be wiped off the face of the earth tomorrow, few tens or hundreds of millions of years' time, other species would evolve that actually had exactly the same kind of unease at their own condition that we do. In fact, it isn't just arbitrary, but we're touching on something that's actually almost woven into the fabric of the universe. Maybe. I mean, there's what's sometimes called the anthropic principle, isn't there, which uh, says something like that. I'm sceptical of that for a number of reasons. One reason is that um, if there were many sentient creatures in the universe, where are they? I mean, that's the famous question. I forget which famous physicist said that Mm. Princeton one day, but he said, well, where are they? Surely they'd be here by now. I mean, they would have landed. They would have, I mean, some people now claim that, including a leading astronomer at Harvard now argues, a very reputable figure. Not that there are any visitations or abductions, but that there are some astronomical phenomena that can be best interpreted. It's hard to interpret as other than being signs of not only alien life, but of alien technology. I don't know. But uh, it's equally possible, you see, from my point of view, if you think of evolution, as I tend to do in non-teleological terms, then I'm resistant to introducing technology for, so to speak, human reasons. But it seems to me to be, a, if you say something like humans will pop up everywhere, in a roundabout way, I mean, this particular human species uh, might go under in, even in the next few hundred years because of climate change or some other catastrophe which it had partly brought on itself. But there'd be others who'd pop up elsewhere. You're putting humans back at the centre of things like they were before. And, and I'm resistant to that. But there's another possibility which is relevant to feline philosophy because one of the thought experiments I engaged in in the book, and I sometimes even mimic the voice of such a feline philosopher, would be supposing there could be a breed of cats that had all the features we associate with cats as we find them as our companions uh, at the present time, but also had the cognitive abilities to be a philosopher. What sort of philosophy would it do mm. if it did any? And at times, for example, when I gave my 10 feline hints at living, <laughs> living well at the end of the book, I sort of assumed the tone of voice yes. as, as a literary or thought experiment of, of such a cat. Now, it could be, as you were suggesting, Nick, that any creature, feline or otherwise, that acquired the self-consciousness of humans would also acquire the anxiety. But it might not be the case. Mm. Uh, it might be the case that there are creatures in the universe, in other planets or other solar systems or other galaxies, that have as much or more self-consciousness than we do, but just have none of the anxieties that we do. Yes. Maybe because they're not, in some way, programmed to fear death. Yes. Just don't. And so similarly, I can imagine this breed of cats in this way. Now, you could say, what's the point of developing a philosophy which is so alien from human beings? But it's to bring out this sort of 
paradox, if you like, that uh, other creatures can live well without any philosophy. So what I, was, what I say in the book is if there were cats like that and they did practice philosophy, it would be a, a form of play. Yes. It would be a form of entertainment yeah. or amusement. And they wouldn't take it seriously because it wouldn't be answering a deep need in them. It would be more like an occasional game of backgammon that they would do now and then if it, if it, if it, if it, if it entertained them. So I can see the anthropic principle, but I'm, I'm not... Uh, I mean, look, my great friend James Lovelock, in his most recent book on artificial intelligence, comes to the conclusion that we're probably alone. Hmm. I tend to find that an implausible view, if only for one reason, which is that we're not alone on this planet and being sentient. Hmm. We're alone in thinking about... I mean, we may be desolating the planet, and we might eventually be almost alone, if we wreck it the way we are wrecking it, gut out, kill off, kill off practically all the other complex species, or we only have a handful left. Uh, but we're not alone here. And this is demonstrated by more and more, as you say, we're finding that many human responses, not all, but many, that we thought were human, not just that were human-specific, we share in some degree, some, sometimes striking degree, with other species. John... It's been a pleasure to talk to you. The The book is called Feline Philosophy, Cats and the Meaning of Life. Mm. John Gray, thank you very much for joining us on Reading Our Times. And thank you, Nick, for a very enjoyable and stimulating and penetrating conversation. Next week, I'll be talking to Alexandra Aikenwald about the origins and the future of language. When people lose a language, they lose much of their connection with the past. They lose their identity. They lose the expressive power. And in many ways, they lose the feeling of who they are. Reading Our Times comes to you from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Abby Allison, Lizzie Harvey, Pete Whitehead and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast.